The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I thought I'd talk today about wealth. Um. <laughs> <laughs> seems to be a relevant topic in people's lives. Uh, how many of you ever thought of meditation as an investment? Yeah. It's okay, I don't have to argue that, that point too much. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a concept that has a long tradition in the Buddhist, in the Buddhist teachings. You notice that when you focus on the present moment, the present moment is inextricably tied with the past and the future. And that's not just because you're forgetting to be in the present moment, but actually when you're experiencing the present, you're not experiencing only what you're doing right now, but you're also experiencing results of things you've done in the past. And the things you do right now don't only give results right now, but they also give results on into the future. And so when you're placing effort in a particular area in the present moment, you're also investing in the future. If you're placing effort in your worries, it's because you believe that your worries will stand you in good stead in the future. If you place effort into mindfulness, it's because you believe mindfulness will serve you in good stead in the future. And even the act of reminding yourself to stay in the present moment, that's connecting one thought, one moment to the next, to the next, to the next. The original meaning for the word mindfulness was just that, to remind yourself to stay. You have a particular topic, a particular frame of reference, and you Make a note to yourself, don't forget this, I want to stay here on into the future because this is a valuable place to stay. Even in traditions where mindfulness is translated in other ways, uh, such as awareness of the present moment, um, this, the importance of reminding yourself to stay here because it's an important place to stay is, is essential to the practice. I know of one Vipassana teacher who once said that mindfulness is not hard, it's remembering to be mindful that's hard. <laughs> I might quibble with his word choice, but the basic point is true, that you have to keep reminding yourself. And so part of being in the present moment is to say, this is a good place to stay, I want to stay here in the future. So you are really investing in the present, in the future, as you would invest energy into the present moment. There are some people who would argue with this, and they say this is a form of spiritual materialism, that you're planning to store up something for the future. Um, the idea that you're trying to gain something out of the practice is a form of materialism. The Buddha, how never, never taught in that way. He never criticized the idea of working for the future. He says this is an important part of being heedful, um, realizing that there are dangers in the future. Um, in case you don't know, um, we're all subject to aging. <laughs> Illness, death can come. And so we have to prepare for these things. You know? <laughs> and you have to prepare. And that rem rem keeping that point in mind, that you have to prepare, that's a form of looking to the future and being heedful. And then you want to invest. What are the important things to focus on in the future? The Buddha himself also talked about inner wealth. Um, there are many different contexts in which he did this. He once said that the treasures of his teaching were the, uh, the wings to awakening, seven sets of teachings, including the four frames of reference, four right efforts, eightfold noble path, seven factors of awakening, the five strengths, the five powers, and then the uh, five faculties and the four bases of power, that's seven sets. And for some reason, seven seems to be the magic number for treasure in the Pali Canon, because he also talked about another set of treasures, which is the t topic I'd like to talk about today. A man named Uga one time came to see the Buddha. He was a king's minister, and he was talking about how 
one of the men in Sawati was an extremely wealthy man. He said he had a hundred thousand pieces of gold to say nothing of all the silver that he had. And the Buddha's response was, okay, yes, that is a treasure. I don't deny that it is. But he said that treasure is subject to fire, floods, <coughs> kings, thieves, hateful heirs. I've always liked one, the way the Buddha put kings and thieves together. <laughs> and secondly, nowadays we know that thieves sometimes, sometimes come in pinstripe suits. Um, he says, but there is another set of treasures which is not subject to these things. The inner treasures, qualities you develop in the mind that you can depend on. Fire will not burn them, nobody can steal them from you. And they will actually give you things that money cannot buy. That, that last point was, one of, was something I added myself. The Buddha doesn't say it. But it is, when you look at the list that he gives you, it's really true. You get things out of this that you cannot buy with any amount of money. The list is seven. It starts with conviction, and we'll go into definitions of each of these terms. Conviction, virtue, shame, compunction, learning, generosity, and wisdom, or discernment. And each of these, as you invest in them, will bear dividends down the line. The first four, conviction, virtue, shame, and compunction, function as a unit to protect you from doing unskillful things. Conviction, um, traditionally speaking, is talked about in two ways. One, it's conviction in the Buddha's awakening, believing that the Buddha actually did gain awakening and that he did this, one, through his own efforts, two, through developing qualities of mind that anybody can develop. As he said, it wasn't because he was a special god or a special had special things that nobody else had. Rather, that he developed qualities of resolution, heedfulness, and ardency that anybody can develop. If you work on developing these qualities, you too can reach awakening. You too can come to an end of suffering. When you have conviction in that principle, it's important in two ways. One, as we all know, any kind of investment requires trust. That's why they name companies like Prudential. Fidelity. <laughs> to give you the impression that you can <laughs> trust funds. Okay. Um, <laughs> that you can trust in these things. In, and you do have to have a certain amount of trust. And when the Buddha said he was awakened, he really didn't know what he's talking about. Because if you're going to be investing in your internal qualities, you have to believe, okay, there is a system whereby what you do is important. The qualities of mind that you develop are important in your life. When the Buddha comes and says, okay, I did this, I've got good results from it, this gives you the confidence, okay, I can do this as well. Because um, it's going to take effort to develop some of these qualities. Some of them require restraint. Some of them require um, putting a lot of extra effort into things that can be difficult. And so there's the question of having trust in what he has to say. But it's having trust not only in him, but also trust in your own actions. Trust in your ability to train the mind. That you do have these potentials within the mind that you can develop that will carry you on. And what you do and say and think really does have an important impact on your life. So you have to trust in that principle because sometimes it takes a while for it to, to carry through or to bear fruit. Um, following on this principle of conviction come the other three qualities in this particular set. Virtue, um, the word sila in Pali can also mean a precept. It can mean a particular promise that you make to yourself that you're going to abstain from harmful behavior. Now, the traditional list is you're not going to kill, you're not going to steal, you're not going to have illicit sex, you're not going to lie, you're not going to take alcoholic beverages at all, period. It's a promise you make because you realize that any form of one of these forms of behavior can be harmful. 
and you want to make sure that in, in causing harm like this, you know what happens. If you've done harm to other people, you know that you intentionally did something and it harmed somebody else or it harmed yourself. The follow-up, of course, is regret. And this is going to make it difficult when you sit down to meditate. Often it makes it difficult to sleep at night. I know uh, even in the monastery where we have no internet access, sometimes people will send us little CDs and say, there's something we heard on the web, you've really got to listen to this. And it was some um, radio talk show where some guy was calling in. He'd been a Vietnam vet. And this is, what, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And he says he has not been able to sleep for the last 30 years because there was a young girl he killed in Vietnam. Every time he closes his eyes, he sees her face. And he can't get her face out of his memory. And it's driving him crazy. And you could tell from the tone of his voice that the guy was, you know, was really on the edge. And you know, that kind of remorse, as I said earlier, this is one of those things that if you could give money to get rid of that remorse, everybody would pay. But you, know, you can't buy freedom from remorse with any amount of money. So you have to make a promise to yourself you're not going to do the kinds of things you're going to later regret. And it's useful to have these things as clear-cut precepts. Um, because many times it's not when you're sitting around here listening to Dharma talk that you're going to think of killing somebody. <laughs> but it's when you, know, so you come into your house and you find someone is you know, molesting your children, the thought does come into your mind. Or as I was revealing myself here, um, in the recent Onion, a man realized that you know, a few years ago the idea of killing his wife and children would have struck him crazy. <laughs> Nowadays, it doesn't strike him as crazy anymore. <laughs> it's kind of a scary thought. Um, it's when you're really, really tempted that you have to have a clear-cut precept in mind that you're not going to do this, no matter what. Um, I think I've, I may have mentioned this to this group a couple years back. Back in 1998, I was up in Alaska. And back in those days, they used to have huge signs around the state of Alaska for the tourists, and they were called bear awareness. <laughs> and it was what you do in case of a bear attack. And the first thing they say is, do not run. Now, when you see a bear charging at you, what's going to be your first impulse? <laughs> you want to run. And so you have to have it drilled into your mind. Do not run. In the same way, okay, if you're tempted to kill, it's good to have the precept in your head. Do not kill. I've made this promise. No killing, no circumstances. Under no circumstances. The same with stealing. The same with illicit sex. The same with lying. There are times when it would be very easy to lie. You think, well, I can get away with it now, and maybe it actually might do some good, a little bit of good right now to, to hide a particular matter. Um, you have to remind yourself, no, you have to say the truth. Now, you don't have to reveal everything, but what comes out of your mouth has to be a true fact. You make that promise to yourself so that you don't later get tied up in the kinds of difficulties that come when, you've, when you spin a lie and then you have to keep on spinning it for the rest of your life. That's a lot of problems there. Um, the same with alcohol. You take a drink and you think you can handle it. Everyone thinks they know. I know when I'm you know, how far I can handle my liquor. Well, that gets very fuzzy. You know, your judgment gets fuzzier the you know each time you take a drink, and so it's best to say no alcohol at all, no drugs at all. This way, you keep these promises to yourself. Okay, you you gain a wealth, a form of wealth, which is that you are free from remorse. You don't do anything that's going to cause remorse later down the line. <coughs> to help to protect you in that resolve, the Buddha recommends. Actually, three qualities, one of which is not uh, mentioned in the list of treasures, but it's worth mentioning now, which is that you have to develop goodwill for all beings. And again, you have to, this doesn't mean just thinking of spreading goodwill as a kind of a goodwill sandwich spread that you just spread over the world and you, pre and you pretend there's nobody in there you don't like. You have to go through it. Is there anybody in there that I actually would wish ill to? You have to 
bring it up to mind. Okay, the so and so, this person, that person, um, um, and then you ask, well, what would I gain from their suffering? And realize you don't gain anything from anybody's suffering. In fact, a lot of the horrible people in the world are horrible because they are suffering. It would be better if they could you know, realize that the causes of happiness do not lie in horrible behavior, but they lie in more skillful behavior. So you wish that they would learn to be more skillful. Two other qualities which are listed in the treasures are shame and compunction. Now, shame has a very bad uh, press here in America because we tend to think of it as being equated with low self-esteem. Actually, the way the Buddha means shame actually is correlated with high self-esteem. You think of doing something unskillful, you think of doing something less than honest, and you would be ashamed to do that because you realize it's beneath you. And this comes with high self-esteem, not with low self-esteem. And this protects you. You think of doing something bad, and you say, ah, I just can't do that. I'd be ashamed to do that. And that protects you. It is kind of protection, again, against doing things that would later cause remorse. Compunction is similar in the sense that I don't want to do that because I know there are going to be bad results down the line if I do. And so again, you're thinking about the future, you're trying to be heedful, you're trying to exercise restraint. And that sense that, okay, I don't care about the future, I just want to do what I do right now, that's really not very wise. You've got to keep your future, the future in mind as you make your decisions. If you have this constellation of four qualities, there's conviction that your actions really do matter, you take some, make some promises to yourself in the forms of the precepts that you will not harm beings in any, in, under any circumstances. Um, and then you back those up with a sense of shame at the idea of doing something unskillful and compunction about realizing, okay, unskillful things really do have bad results. I don't want to, I don't want to go there. This set of four qualities really is a treasure in the heart because it protects you from that, you know, the ravages of remorse later on. The other three qualities, have to do more with positive. I mean, this is avoiding avoiding things that are negative. The other three qualities are developing positive qualities in mind. The first one is learning. And here the Buddha is talking specifically about learning the Dharma. In practice communities, there tends to be, there is a tendency to denigrate study as being you know, sort of just learning the maps, but if you really want to know the trail, you've got to walk the trail. But it also is good to know the map. Because you'll come across, in the course of your practice, you'll come across things on the trail that you wouldn't know how to deal with unless you'd had a larger view of the path as a whole and knew where the pitfalls were to begin with. So the Buddha said it's good not only to, in their days, it was just listening to the Dharma, they didn't have Dharma books, but you would listen to the Dharma, but also if you had any doubts about something, you would ask questions. And I think this is one of the great things about the Buddha's teachings is that there's a huge room for asking questions. You know, in certain religions, they, you come across a particular teaching and say, why is it this way? Why is it that way? And say, don't ask. <laughs> this business about original sin, does it make any sense? Don't ask. You know. <laughs> in the areas where the Buddha says not to ask, it's largely because he says that line of questioning is going to take you nowhere. You know, for instance, the question, who am I? And the Buddha says... It, that's, that gets you stuck in a morass. And it's not because the Buddha has embarrassed about the answer, it's because he says it goes nowhere. Okay, if you ask the question, well, what am I doing? Why should I do it? He'll ask you. He'll answer you. So the Dharma is basically about actions. In fact, one of the meanings of the word Dharma is action. If you take home nothing else from today's talk, that's, that's one of, it's, it's, um, it's one of the aspects of the word Dharma which is usually underrated, but I think it's it's really important. The Buddha is talking about what you're doing. That's what the path is all about. That's what the teachings are all about. Look at what you're doing and see what the results are. 
And so if you have questions about why are we doing this, the Buddha says, okay, go ahead and ask. And then you try to think it through and then you discuss it with other people until finally you've got a really clear understanding, both through the listening and also through the practice. Because in, in, in the Buddhist teachings, there's three ways of gaining knowledge. One is through listening, the other is through thinking, and finally the third is through actually developing these qualities of mind. The Buddha says, you know, concentration is a good thing. Okay, you try to develop it. And in the course of developing it, you realize, okay, there are really good reasons for why the Buddha said this. And you also begin to run, in, run into areas of the mind where you thought you were mindful, you thought you were consistent in your thinking, you thought you were aware, alert, and you realize you weren't. Okay, you've learned something important that you've got to work on these qualities. And so by learning here, the Buddha means not only listening to the Dharma, but also putting into practice and gaining that kind of understanding as well. The sixth treasure is generosity. And when you're being generous, you gain something again that you can't buy, which is a broadened mind, a broadened heart. And if all you can think about is, I've got to take care of this, and I'm afraid this is going to get taken, you know, I, this is in danger and that's in danger, and I've got to protect my wealth as much as I can, can't let it share it with anybody. Okay, your heart just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And, it's, and if your heart is small, it's like living in a small house. You can't move. But as you think about, what does this person need? What does that person need? I've got this, I can share. Your heart gets broadened. There's a famous riddle in Thailand is, how can you fix fish in such a way that you can eat it all year? And the answer is not making fish sauce. <laughs> you, you fix it and then you share it with your neighbor. And then when the neighbor has something, the neighbor come back and share it with you. So it's a form of wealth. You're basically investing in the principle of generosity. And at the same time, you're broadening your heart. And it feels much nicer to live in a broad heart because you may live in your house only, say, eight hours out of the day, but you're living in your heart 24-7. So you want to live in a heart that's broad and wide open. The seventh treasure is wisdom or discernment. And Buddha, the Buddha says specifically, it's the wisdom that allows you to see particularly how things arise and pass away in the present moment. And this is where, after having established a good relationship to time, past and future with the, seven, the six other treasures. Then in the seventh treasure, you really can focus specifically on what's arising and passing away in the present moment. Because if you're carrying into the meditation a lot of regrets, a lot of worries, it's very difficult to focus on you know, what's arising, what's passing away, what's skillful and what's unskillful. Because there are going to be huge areas of either remorse or the other side, of course, which is denial. And it was already broken when I sat down on it. If you carry that kind of thinking, there's going to be large blocked out areas in your mind that you just cannot access in the course of the meditation. And you get very defensive about, well, I should have done that, I had to do it that way. But if you've learned that you don't, if you behave in such a way that you don't carry those regrets around, there are no sensitive sort of scarred areas in the mind that you can't touch. You can go in, you can kind of dig up anything in the mind and look at it clearly as what's arising right now, what's passing away right now. And this helps you let go of a lot of the burdens that the mind carries around. Because what are our burdens? Many of them, you know, the mind, when, it's, when you talk about the mind grasping or holding on to things, the mind doesn't have a hand that comes out and reaches onto a thing. What the mind is holding on to is a particular type of activity. We have our habits that we follow over and over and over again. And many of us believe that when, you know, we have to keep in touch with the world in a certain way, so we have to keep certain types of thinking going. We have to keep track of ourselves in a certain way, so we have to keep certain types of thinking going. 
especially if you've got areas where you've, there's remorse, as I said, where there's a sense of um, being unjustly treated. We tend to carry those around with us all the time. Those don't get examined. But if you put the mind in a position where it has no regrets, has no worries, you can focus in the present moment and you can look at these things as they arise and realize that certain patterns of behavior really are not necessary to function, that you can function perfectly well without them. I've, some of you, I've, I've, I may have talked about Conrad Lawrence and his goose. Do you know the story about Conrad Lawrence and his goose? Conrad Lawrence was a naturalist living in Vienna. And he had a goose that gave birth to goslings, and then the goose died. When the one, and one of the goslings survived. And so immediately, of course, the gosling imprinted on Conrad Lawrence as his mother. So everywhere Conrad Lawrence went, the little gosling would follow him around. And this was during the spring and summer. It was perfectly all right when to keep the goose outside, but as fall approached and the little gosling was becoming a goose, Conrad Lawrence realized that he had to bring the goose into the house to feed him there. And so one evening he opened the door without feeding the goose and just walked into his house. And the goose followed him in. And as soon as it got in the door, it freaked out. It had never been in an enclosed space before. And the way the house was set up, there was this long hall that went to a window, and then halfway down the hall was a stairway that went up to Conrad Lawrence's apartment. So Conrad Lawrence goes up the stairway. In the meantime, the goose, freaking out, heads straight to the window. Gets to the window, realizes it can't get out. And so then it turns around and follows Conrad Lawrence up the stairs to have his meal. And so from that point on, every time the goose entered the house, it would go to the window, come back, go up the stair. <laughs> and as time passed, the trip to the window got shorter and shorter and sort of more ritualistic you know, until finally it got to the point he would go to that side of the stairway, shake his foot at the window, <laughs> head up the stairs. Well, one night, Conrad Lawrence gets home from work late. And the goose is really hungry. So Conrad Lawrence goes in the house, opens the door, and the goose immediately runs up the stairs. Stops halfway up the stairs. Starts shaking all over. Goes down the stairs, walks to the window, comes back, goes up the stairs. <laughs> and you may have noticed that um, the goose is very much like the mind. We have our ritualistic ways of doing things and also patterns of thinking that we will just not let go of because I've got to keep track of the world. Every morning I've got to look at the newspaper. This is one of the problems of having your wealth invested out in the world. You know, It really matters what people someplace else are doing. And also taking care of, okay, what's mine? Where are my investments right now? Okay, if they're outside, you've constantly got to be keeping track of these things. But if you're invested more and more in your skills in the present moment, you don't have to worry about that stuff. Because you realize that everything you've got invested is invested right here. Thieves can't steal it. Kings can't take it away. Fire can't burn it. Floods can't take it away. Hateful heirs will never get hold of your, your treasures. That's another concept I really like. <laughs> Hateful heirs. And so a lot of these you know, patterns of, of th thinking that we have that we really hold on to are difficult to let go of as long as we really are invested outside. If you invest more inside, then it's easier to see exactly what's arising and passing away in the present moment. What is it that you're clinging to? What activities you're clinging to that are causing suffering? And you can drop them. And it's this way where the treasures take you to the highest treasure, of course, which is the unconditioned, which opens up in the mind as you let go of things arising and passing away in the present moment. So that takes you to the ultimate treasure, okay, which is an experience of the deathless, experience of the unconditioned, which nothing can touch at all. 
And these other seven treasures are sort of intermediate treasures on the way to something really more valuable. So when you think about the, the issue of wealth, it's wise to think in the Buddhist terms. Okay, wealth is something that, that you develop in the mind. This is really your own wealth. This is really your own treasure. And the idea of looking at meditation, looking at the practice as a form of investment, is not a crass or materialistic thing. It's, it's heedful. As the Buddha said, all skillful behavior comes from heedfulness. You realize that you have to abstain from certain things and you have to put extra effort into good things, not only because it feels good right now, but because it's going to be good down the line. Because sometimes it doesn't feel good right now. You know, especially when you have to abstain from doing something you'd really like to do, but you, you know, there's certain things you'd really like to say, but you, you know, refrain. Okay, you're maintaining your dignity. You're maintaining your inner treasures. Okay, it may not feel good right now, but you know down the line the results are going to be good. That's a wise way of behaving. It's a prudent way of behaving. And the word prudency, how, how many times do we use that in the course of the day here in America? Prudent behavior? Zero. Okay. Okay. But it's, you know, it's one of those words that we should revive. You know? What's the prudent way to live? A, a way that's looking at, okay, where you really are investing your energy. Are you investing it here or are you just scattering it outside? And I would recommend that you know, looking inside and investing in your heart is the wisest investment of all. You don't have to worry about regulation or deregulation. It's all right, it's all right here. So, so those are some of my thoughts on the topic of wealth. One final thing. I was really struck when Merrill Lynch was sold. Back when I was a child, they used to have, we lived on a farm in New York, and every Sunday afternoon we listened to WQXR, had the New York Philharmonic, and it was Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and Smith back in those days, and they were advertising it. And I was so impressed by how you know reliable they sounded and how impressive they sounded that when, when our dachshund had puppies, she had five males one time. I named them Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and Smith. <laughs> And so it was a shock to see that even they can go down. So, um, but from the point of view of the Dharma, it's not shocking at all. This happens all the time. So um, do you have any thoughts or questions on the topic of inner wealth? Yes. This may not be directly on that topic, but it's a little bit related. Um, considering all of the current uh, storms and, and hurricanes around which are swirling around us, um, and the, the difficulty of um, practicing certain parts of what you were talking about, especially right speech, right livelihood, and considering the, the prominent people today who are <coughs> indeed um, doing battle with each other, do you think that it is even possible for someone who really wishes to practice the Buddhist way and who wishes to adhere to that kind of ethics, some of the things you were talking about today, can really engage in, in, in what we now know as, as our political arena without being absolutely contradicted by all the things that they would be forced to do and say. And do you think that's really just, just totally impossible to, to materialize? I think we have to look in the long term, because what's happened is you know, that the level of discourse has gone down. And the idea being that if you know if you can shoot somebody else down, then you've done something. You've made a point. You've scored a point. Um, and this is not just kind of an accident. There have been a group of people who really say, if we can get Americans not talking to each other but screaming at each other, we can take over, because there's no room for rational discourse. 
And so on an individual level and on a group level, we should try to maintain this idea. Let's maintain you know, civil discourse. And there'll be hoots and things from the side, but after a while, if more and more people realize, okay, if you, you cannot lead the country just by you know, screaming insults about your opponent. This is not a sign of being qualified to lead. Um, and we've forgotten what it means to be a leader nowadays. But I think it's one of those things that, that this, has been, this has been in the works with all the think tanks and everything trying to destroy our, our arena of discourse. We have to start working in the other direction, say maybe not in this election cycle, but over time as we establish that you, know, you really do want to have a leader here rather than just people who can snatch as many votes as possible. I think over time it's important. It can happen. I mean, look at the Buddha. There was, at the time, there was a lot of, um, you know, when he, when he yoked kings and thieves together, it was because kings were taking over. They used to have little republics and other kings were moving in and just kind of wiping out the republics. And people would come to the Buddha and ask sort of, you know, political questions. And he wouldn't talk about, you know, this particular king is bad or that particular king is bad, but he'd say, you know, what is the ideal king? And he's kind of established the ideal king is someone who makes sure that there's an even distribution of wealth, that there's a rule of law. And he got those ideas out there in the society, and then 200 years later you get King Ashoka. So it may take a amount of time, but as long as you're willing to invest time, then it can happen. There's a question over here. Um, you were talking about Sila, and... Um you gave as a reason for um, following the precepts something I've heard often in the Buddhist teachings, you know, that a reason to do it is that we'll sleep better at night, so to speak. Um, our mind will be less afflicted with guilt or remorse, um, which does strike me as a good reason. But what's always surprised me about the fact that that's always the reason that seems to be given in the Buddhist philosophy is that it seems like there's another good reason, which is... Um, other people will suffer less if we if we harm them less, right? Um, and it always surprises me that um, the reason that's given for people to do it is selfish, essentially, yeah, yeah, yeah. rather than... Um, now, now, of course, maybe it's that, well, if you start with a person that doesn't care about other people, um, it's not going to move them to say that other people will suffer less if they behave well. Um, but I'm just curious your reflections on mm-hmm. the reason in the tradition for this being the reason that's given for Sila. There's a story in the Udana where King Basenadiya is in his inner chambers with King, Queen Malika. And I guess what must, it must have been a tender moment. He turns to her and he says, is there anybody you love more than yourself? You know what he's expecting. <laughs> yes, Your Majesty, You. And then he said, and how about you? Do you love me more than you love yourself? Yes. And then, again, you know, then it gets into something a monk can't talk about. Um, <clears throat> but no, she said, no. There's nobody I love more than myself. And how about you? And that sort of... <laughs> that puts an end to King, uh, King Bassanity's plans for the evening. So, <laughs> so instead, he goes down and visits the Buddha. And he mentions to the Buddha what had happened. You know, and the Buddha says, you know, she's right. You can survey the whole world and there's nobody out there that you would find that you would love more than yourself. And similarly, everybody out there loves him or herself very fiercely. And so for this reason, you should not harm anyone. Now it sounds like, okay, you're not harming them because it's in your own self-interest. 
not to harm them. But that, that he says, is that's not a bad beginning for compassion. Because a lot of people say, well, compassion, that's really, you know, it's really unrealistic because what happens, you know, when push comes to shove and you've really got to protect your own interest? And the Buddha's reminding you, okay, that, you know, there's really hard times you have to realize it is in your own interest to be compassionate with others. Because they're not going to suffer. You're both, you're basically, you're working for both people's good. And there is a, there is a passage where, I think it was one of the, one of the gods, when the gods and the asuras were having a battle. One of, the, one of the gods says, okay, it is for the benefit of the other person and for yourself, and so this gets to your point, that you don't lie to other people and you don't just try to beat them all the time, that you actually try to look at what's in, what's in our mutual self-interest. Because this, I think, is what it comes down to, as the Buddha says, there are a lot of areas where things really are, it's not your interest versus my interest, it's our mutual interest. Both of us benefit. But it's also, you know, the, when the times when you're most tempted to break the precepts are not when you're feeling a lot of love for somebody else or concern for somebody else. It's when you feel like, okay, my, my interests are being harmed, I've got to do something. And so it's good to have that in mind. Okay, my interests are don't kill. There's one, and it, the Buddha gives a really graphic instance of this to keep, help you keep it in mind. He said, even if bandits were taking a two-handled sword, a two-handled saw, and they had you pinned down and they were sawing off your arms and legs. He said, you should spread goodwill to the bandits. Okay. You know, so when, when your boss yells at you or when your spouse yells at you, you can say, okay, are they cutting off my limbs with a two-handled sword? <laughs> no. Okay, then I can stand it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Anything else? Okay, here's the microphone. The question was, what is the etymology of my name? Tana means position, and Isara means sovereignty. Uh-oh. <laughs> and the reason they gave me that name was because they give names in Thailand to monks based on the day of the week you were born. And Wednesday is, is, has, is the problem with Wednesday, which is the day I was born. There's only one letter in the Pali alphabet, which is auspicious on Wednesdays. And it's this TH with a dot under it. And there's only two words in Pali that begin with that letter. So you hear a lot of titta and tana as you go around the Thai tradition. So that's where it came from. Yes. It seems to me that there's, um, when, when you talked about the precepts and, and some very clear rules don't kill, mm-hmm. don't drink. Um, there seems to me that there's a tension between kind of those very firm rules mm-hmm. and an idea of, of the middle way. Mm-hmm. Um, is is there? The middle is, middle way is not be halfway between not drinking and drinking a lot. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's like. Excuse me for a political reference. It's like you know, when they define the center as halfway between the two political parties. You know, the center just keeps moving further and further right. So you have to realize, where was the Buddha coming from as an extreme form of behavior? You know, starving yourself. That was his ex- idea of an extreme form of behavior. So the idea of not drinking is not extreme. The idea of not killing is not extreme. You don't kill in moderation. You don't. 
you don't steal in moderation. <laughs> you don't have illicit sex in moderation. You know. So, so it's, it's, you know, it's all or nothing for those. Because it is a promise you make to yourself. And the Buddha says, when you hold by this promise, you're giving a gift of universal safety. Nobody out there has to be afraid that you're going to kill them. And when you give universal safety, you get a share in that universal safety as well. So it is a promise you make to yourself, because you know this kind of behavior is always going to be unskillful. So that is the middle way. And it's the same with, same with right effort. We, you know, we know all know that famous image of the, of the lute, you know, the string that's not tuned too tight or the string that's not tuned too loose. But that's, the Buddha's not saying that a kind of a middling effort is the right effort. He says you look for what's appropriate at any one given time. And that ba it's based on one, in that particular case, it's based on how much strength do you have right now. If your health is good, you can put in a lot more effort. If your health is weak, you say, okay, I can't put in the kind of effort that I wanted to, but I'll put in as much as I can. Secondly, given the situation, how much effort is appropriate? It's like cleaning up this hall. You know, if there's a little bit of dirt, you don't have to clean up much. But somebody died in here. It was mangled, you know. You don't just come in with a broom and sweep up a little bit and go home, you know. You know, you know, really serious cleaning up had to be done. And so you have to look at your own defilements. Some of your defilements are very gentle, and all you have to do is just look at them and they wither away. And other defilements have really deep roots. It's going to take a long time to dig them up, and it takes a lot of energy. So the right, what the middle way is, i.e., what's appropriate for the situation. And you know, in, in case of, like again with the bears, you know, it's not running a little bit and stopping. You just don't run. Period. Now there's some, there's some areas in life where, and, and you know, the precepts don't cover. The precepts only cover only very few areas. Just to keep your mind, you can. When you're really tempted to have a drink, or you're really tempted to lie, you don't do it. But there are a lot of areas that are not really covered by the precepts, and it's the same with that bear awareness sign. You know, if a bear if a bear runs at you, don't run. If the bear attacks you, lie down and play dead. And then they go through a whole series of things, what might happen. But then they finally say, okay, if the bear is chewing on you. Okay. Um, at this point, you have to try to notice. Is the bear chewing out of curiosity, after which he'll leave you and you'll be okay? Or is he chewing out of genuine hunger? Now, this requires strong powers of mindfulness. <laughs> <laughs> And, and as, the, as the sign will admit, there are no clear-cut rules for that one. And this is why you have another reason why it's important to develop and, and invest in mindfulness and alertness. So in those areas that are not covered by the precepts, you have to be able to read the situation to figure out what's appropriate. Yes, question back there. Okay. I don't know how to put this clearly, but um, if you could speak about trying to navigate between to operate from navigating the world and to the concept of there being no self, one feels you know, seems like it's it's a goal. The other, the first, feels like it's 
something to move away from and and how to navigate that. Okay, the best way to navigate that is to throw out the idea there is no self. Because the Buddha never said that. He taught a not-self teaching. At one point he was asked, point blank, is there a self, is there no self? He refused to answer. And the guy got up, the guy who asked the question got upset and left. And so, <laughs> you can't even answer that much. Um, and so then Ananda comes up to the Buddha saying, why didn't you answer? And the Buddha said, you know, if I said there was a self, that's siding with one form of wrong view, eternalism. And if I said there is no self, that's siding with another form of wrong view, which is annihilationism. I mean, there were other people in the Buddhist time who taught there is no self, therefore eat, drink, and be merry, because, you know, there's no self to reap the rewards of your actions, you know, just do what you want to do in the present moment. But the Buddha said, basically what he said was, if you take the teaching of not-self and you apply it to the various things you're clinging to, it's the teaching of not-self is actually a type of strategy. It's a type of practice. You look at wherever you're clinging to something, and if you see that you're identifying with something that's going to cause suffering, you drop that identification until you've totally eliminated all the things that you could be holding on to that would cause suffering. And it's at that point that you attain the deathless. So it's a, it's, a, it's, a te- it's a strategy of looking, okay, where am I holding on to things that are causing suffering? Drop them. Now, selfing, he says, is a kind of activity. It gives an analysis of how we create a sense of self. It is a kind of fabrication. And there are areas in the path where you've got to use them, a sense of self. You've got to have a sense of, you know, that you can rely on yourself, that you're responsible. In fact, um, I was going to get into this tomorrow night, the whole issue of Buddha nature. Um, the Buddha says, when you get onto the path of practice, all you need to ask yourself is, okay, what do you need in order to be on this practice? You need to be a human being to do this practice. Other people are human beings. They've been able to gain nirvana. I'm a human being. Why can't I? Now, the Buddha recognizes that as a form of conceit, but he said this is essential to the practice. So there are times when creating the sense of I, which, which is basically what they mean with, by conceit, doesn't mean pride, but just a sense of self-identity, has an important role in the practice that you hold on to. And then in the course of those seven treasures we talked about now, the first six really do depend on a sense of I. I'm going to benefit, I, I am responsible for my actions, I will reap the results of my actions. And therefore I should abstain from harmful behavior and you know, do as much positive behavior as I can. And it's only when you get to that very last stage that you've sort of cleaned up your life that you're ready to start taking things apart in terms of, okay, where am I holding on to? In an ultimate sense. Prior to that, you learn how to let go of unskillful habits that you've identified as, you know, my way of doing things. I have to run to the window before I go up to the stairway. And you realize, I don't have to do that anymore. But then as you get further and further in the practice, you begin that you see that certain things, that habits they used to have begin to fall away, fall away, fall away until finally there's just the you in there who's doing the meditation practice. And then you take that apart. So it's a step-by-step process. It's as with any kind of activity, and selfing is a kind of karma. There's skillful ways of selfing and unskillful ways of selfing. So you use the skillful ones until you don't need them anymore, then put them aside. Okay. You all have time? Okay, I'm, I'm told that our time is up. So thank you for your attention. I hope this is helpful.